This is the 2015 Ontario Winter Bible School. Our speaker for this second session is our brother Marco Grady from the Tawa, New Zealand Ecclesia. His theme this week is One in Christ Jesus, Complement Free Roles. This is his fifth class, and the subject of this class is vulnerability. And there is no introductory reading. Brother Mark. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's interesting as the, as the week progresses to notice how late people get to breakfast. And uh, I even noticed it with the young people this morning. I'll excuse you if you see big yawns like we had on some of the young people this morning. As the week goes on, it gets a bit tougher, doesn't it, each morning? So hopefully, God willing, this morning what we'll look at will, uh, will keep our interest. This morning, actually, we're going to look at our topic from quite a different perspective. It may possibly be a different way from which we've ever looked at this topic before. It might be a bit challenging. It may grapple with some doubts which lurk in the background and things which trouble us. And hopefully, God willing, it might help our sisters cope with some of the more challenging aspects of their role and the implications for some of it. But brothers... For us, it will throw down the gauntlet, rather, to see whether we have the courage and the wisdom and the perception, understanding, to step up to the mark in terms of our roles in ecclesial and family life, the way in which we conduct ourselves in our ecclesias, in our communities and in our homes. Actually, really, I guess, to test to see how well we reflect the Spirit of Christ. So let's start by recap, first of all, a simple scriptural principle that we've looked at many times over the course of our studies together. Scriptural teaching is clear. Women have been given by God a different role from that of the men. Their role does involve submission and support, particularly in a marriage relationship, but also even inside an ecclesial context, they're not appointed as the spiritual leaders of the community. So in formal ecclesial settings, their role is not to lead and speak up, but to remain in silence, as scripture says, and the leadership of spiritual direction in the community is administered by the brothers. So to put it succinctly, in ecclesial and family life, men have the responsibility to lead, and women are to support them in that work. So think through the implications of that. What happens if the men are bad leaders? What happens if they let their community, ecclesia, household, family or wife down? What happens when men make mistakes or for some reason are not competent? What then? And sisters, how do you learn to take these principles of submission and learn to apply them in real life when things don't always reflect what they should, when real-life complications arise. You know, we might be resolved to take these principles and then, and then to firmly and resolutely put them into practice, but that can founder on the rock of real-life's experiences and complexities, particularly if you're dealing with men who from time to time don't have the abilities or the spiritual insight that you have. How do you deal with that? How do these principles of submission apply in a situation like that? So those are the things that we want to talk about this morning, and we're going to be aided by the, by the colourful and very rich tapestry of real-life examples from real people in Scripture, as depicted in the biblical record. The scriptural principle of submission and obedience from the wife to the husband does not imply that men are always right. It doesn't imply that men are morally better or in any way more righteous. And our men have to understand this. These principles exist because they're teaching us a lesson about our relationship with God and with Christ, not because we are in any way morally superior. And the challenge for our sisters, and indeed for all of us, is how do we take these divine principles and then uphold them in what are essentially flawed human lives? And so we have to be honest and we have to be humble as we take these principles and we examine them, acknowledging our inadequacies, but still trying to uphold divine principles somehow in life. All right, so brothers, let's turn this whole topic around and let's look at it from the sister's perspective. If women voluntarily relinquish the lead role in ecclesial life, in teaching, 
and decision-making in community, in our community, if they, if they take on a support role to help the men in their work as the providers, well, what, what position does that put them in? What's it done in terms of the risks that they face and the options that are open to them when things go wrong? If you leave it up to the head of the house to provide for you and the family, what happens when he doesn't or can't? What then? And brothers, I wonder if you've ever thought about the fact that if our sisters allow us to take the lead, they have put their well-being into our hands. And they now depend upon us to actually fulfil our role well. And they've become vulnerable. Because now they're exposed to the consequences of how well we fulfil our tasks and our responsibilities. And our behaviour has an impact on their safety and security. And brothers, we need to look at that topic fair and square. Because the consequences of our behaviour, good and bad, flow through directly to our ecclesias and to our families. And as sure as night follows day, the decisions that we make in ecclesial life and in personal home life have an immediate impact on those who are closest to us. When we make decisions in life, in wisdom or in folly, the consequences are inscribed across the lives of the people that whom we have to do with, our families, our ecclesias, our wives and our children. And actually, there is no escaping that fact. So sisters, how do you handle it if you find yourself brighter, more capable, perhaps more socially outgoing, more emotionally stable, a stronger character or personality, or, or more robust health and, and, uh, and vitality than the men with whom you have to deal with? And that might be in ecclesial life, generally, or it also might be directly in your marriage. What happens if your husband's ill? What happens if he has a breakdown or is incapable of providing for you as you need? Or perhaps he's a good man, but he's not coping too well. Or he's made some bad decisions in the past and the consequences of those are still affecting you and your household. So how do you handle that? And how do you apply these, these principles in those sorts of real life situations? Now, of course, these principles are there because they're teaching us about our collective relationship with God and the Lord Jesus Christ. But what happens when human fallibility mars that type? And in a sense, at that point, it becomes an even bigger test for you as sisters. Should we then ignore those principles? Should we then regretfully just have to say, well, I know they're nice principles, but regretfully, I'm just going to have to put them aside. Does the inadequacy of other people ever give us the right to break divine principles? You know, this is a really interesting thing to follow through scripture and then to examine the interaction between faithful women in times of men's weakness or mistakes. You know, there's lots of examples in scripture where that scenario was being faced. Interestingly, some of these men could actually be giants of faith at times but they also had moments of weakness. And it's very revealing to see the way in which these faithful women conducted themselves, balancing those principles, and, and often in quite a sublime way. Okay, let's look at our first example, and this is one that's truly fascinating. Now, for us, of course, we think of King David as being a man of action. He's the poet, he's the warrior, he's the shepherd, he's the king, he's the giant slayer, He's the man after God's own heart. But what we want to do this morning is to look at David at a different period of his life. And we're going to particularly look at the interaction between David and Bathsheba. Not in the tragic beginning of their relationship, but in the inevitable end of it. We're not going to be looking at David the warrior, but, and I say this very respectfully, we're going to be looking at David the geriatric. And what we want to do now is direct our attention to the end of David's life. We want to do so respectfully, but at the same time, honestly and frankly. Because you see, even David got old. And the inevitable consequences of our mortality do not get suspended for anybody, be they faithful or faithless, 
strong or weak. It's something that we do well to remember in our youth. It's something described in the book of Ecclesiastes as the coming of the evil days. It's the time in life when old age makes itself very much felt in the loss of vitality and energy, in the loss of quickness of thought and action, when spatial awareness is degraded and it becomes harder to be just cognizant of of everything that's happening all around us all the time. I'd like you to come with me to 1st of Kings and chapter 1. In 1st of Kings chapter 1, David has become old and infirm. He's physically frail and his body can't generate or retain heat. His normal physical drives are impaired. He spends much of his time lying in bed. So the record tells us that they heaped clothes on him, but he still was cold. So they brought in a beautiful young woman to share his bed to try to keep him warm. But he didn't even touch it because he was past it. As we read through the record, we find that he was actually basically bedridden. People who wanted an audience with the king were brought inside his bedchamber to have audience with him, into his bedroom. And the meagre affairs of state that he still attended to were conducted from his bed. Now, in this record, David is unaware of what is going on in the kingdom around him. He's now no longer out traveling amongst the people. He can't see things that are starting to to transpire. He didn't know the state of things out there. He was completely unaware of the fact that his son Adonijah had started a rebellion against him. Left to himself, he was incapable of discerning what was happening out there. And managing the situation. So we've got the situation where there's a terrible crisis brewing inside David's kingdom. And he, in his feebleness, was not in touch enough to even realise that it was beginning to happen. Solomon is in mortal danger. Bathsheba is at great risk. The entire kingdom is teetering on the brink of a real catastrophe. And there's a withered old man lying on his bed, heaped up under bedclothes, completely unaware of what was going on. So we find in the record that Nathan the prophet comes to tell Bathsheba. Something needs to be done. They can't just leave it up to the king to take care of it and assume that the king's across it all because they knew he didn't even know that the rebellion was actually taking place. So between them, Nathan and Bathsheba then develop a strategy. They build a strategy on how to communicate with the old man, how to present the information to him in such a way that he could cope with it and understand it and follow, and then encourage him to actually deliver the right outcome. They even worked out how the communication strategy would work. So Nathan says, well, go on, Bathsheba, you're the best person. You, You go in and talk to him. In fact, the way I suggest you do it is start with a question. Just get his mind working down this track. Raise the question, ask him if this would happen, then start introducing the topic, and then at that point, I'll just happen to come along as an independent corroboration of what it is that you're about to tell him. Okay, are you ready? Well, let's go. Now, is that an exaggeration? Well, let's go back and look at how the record is written. First of Kings, chapter 1. Verse 5, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. He prepared him chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Verse 11. Wherefore Nathan spoke unto Bathsheba the mother of Solomon, saying, Hast thou not heard that Adonijah the son of Haggith doth reign? And David our Lord knoweth it not? Now therefore come, let me, I pray thee, give thee counsel, that thou mayest save thine own life and the life of thy son Solomon. You go, get thee in unto King David, and say to him, Didst not thou, my lord, O king, swear unto thine handmaid, saying, Assuredly Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then doth Adonijah reign? Behold, verse 14, while thou yet talkest there with the king, I also will come in after thee and confirm thy words. So that's exactly what they did. Verse 22, lo, while she yet talked with the king, Nathan the prophet also came in. They told the king, saying, Behold, Nathan the prophet... 
When he was come in before the king, he bowed himself before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord, O king, hast thou said Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? For he's gone down this day, and hath slain oxen and fat cattle. And reading down, Behold, they eat and drink, and they say, God save king Adonijah. So what do we have here? Were these two, Nathan and Bathsheba, right in what they did or wrong? Is this manipulation? Is this controlling behaviour? Well, no, these are faithful people who are having to, to deal with the reality of the circumstances which they're actually facing. They're dealing with an old man who is in his dotage, but he's still the king. And they have to work out how they deal with that situation. It's a situation that they've been presented with. He's a very old man, and he is completely unaware of what's happening. And these two, at that point, had a responsibility. In fact, they had an obligation to go and speak to the king to avoid this terrible crisis that was about to engulf the entire nation. So the question was, how best to do it? How do you help this aged man come to the right conclusion? And they have to deal with him carefully to achieve this. And so they plan the strategy. Who's going to say what? Who will speak up first? You know, this is a very revealing little incident here. It has that, that searing insight of the divine record when it gives us this impartial description of real-life examples in people's own um, circumstances. Divine, typical impartiality. Now, in this case, of course, David is no longer as capable as he had been earlier. He's still extraordinarily faithful, and we need to appreciate that. His capability is reduced. He's still immensely faithful. He is also still the king, and he is still Bathsheba's husband. So they have to work with that. So they determine, therefore, that Bathsheba is the best person to start this process. But brothers and sisters, particularly what I want us to observe is the way in which Bathsheba conducts herself when she speaks to the king. It's remarkable. So we start verse 15. Bathsheba went in unto the king into the chamber and the record emphasizes the fact the king was very old. Verse 16, Bathsheba comes in and she bows and she does obeisance unto the king. The king said, what wouldest thou? And she said unto him, my lord, thou swearest by Yahweh thy God unto thine handmaid. Just look at the spirit of respect. Now she's being honest. She doesn't deceive him. Verse 18 she says for example now my lord the king thou knowest it not. She is being honest in her statements to him but she is nevertheless unfailingly respectful. There's no hint here of contempt or disdain. There's no hint of disrespect. Just an abiding recognition that he was her lord, her husband, and her king. And then in verse 20, having packaged this up and presented it to him in a simple yet powerful way, look how she finishes. Thou, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are upon thee, that thou shouldest tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. And what we have here is a masterful way of handling a very challenging situation. There's absolute observance here of, of divine protocols and principles of submission, but it's reflected in a situation of practical reality. And there's genius here because it's actually possible to do both. Although she's managed the interview, she has not usurped his role at all. In fact, what she does is she has acknowledged him as her head, She's acknowledged her dependence upon him and her need for him to be able to help her. And she's actually encouraged him and brought him to the point where she presents the decision for him to rise up and actually make the call on. It really is a wonderful way of balancing these divine principles with very challenging circumstances. And even in his deficiency, she acknowledges she still depends upon him. It is an outstanding example of how divine principles can still be upheld even in very difficult circumstances and when dealing with a man here in his weakness and limitation. So sisters, 
What do you do today if your husband is just not perceptive or not in touch? What happens if he doesn't spot the fact that he has to make some decisions and take the lead? Because actually he didn't even identify the fact that there was an issue in the first place. Well, that's exactly where Bathsheba sat with David on this occasion. And yet she still wonderfully illustrates the way in which she encouraged her husband, the king, to fulfil his role, and she didn't pull him down. You see, sisters, we have to acknowledge the fact that not one of the men that you deal with in ecclesial life or family life is perfect. And we all see that, don't we, frequently, day by day. And so we've got the challenge now of, of working out how to apply these scriptural teaching and scriptural principles in lives, in real-life situations, and in ways that still uphold the divine principles. And what we find is that the way in which sisters respond in times of impaired leadership can have a very significant impact on the outcome. Now, this is very cogently illustrated in the example of Hannah in 1 Samuel and chapter 1. Let's go and have a look at 1 Samuel and chapter 1. Now, this example we're going to draw on here is not actually husbands and wives, but particularly sisters and ecclesial leaders. Now, we know the story in 1 Samuel very well. We read verse 6. Well, actually, verse 5 for connection. Um, Well, actually, verse 2. We read, he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And we know how the record emphasises the fact that Yahweh had set, shut up her, her womb. And it was a grief of mind to Hannah. So we start on this record here with two people who are very faithful. We have Elkanah and Hannah. Being faithful, however, does not mean that everything will go smoothly or easily in life. And so Hannah is afflicted with a very personal sorrow. It's the sadness of not being able to have a child not being able to have her own little baby to clasp to her arms. And it's a sorrow which endured, as we see here, for years. It's a sorrow from which there was no relief, because it says that Yahweh had shut up her womb. Now she had, to make matters worse, some conflict inside the family home. There's a description there of an adversary, literally the word means to be a rival, which provokes her sorely. Now, we find that she has loving support in her husband, in Elkanah, and he tries to do what he can to help her. He tries to reach through her sorrow and comfort her. He gives her an extra special portion. He says to her, am not I better to thee than ten sons? And this husband is trying to reach in and help his wife through her grief, but to no avail. There are many households that have experienced Situations over the years where the wife has been burdened with a personal trial or difficulty or grief which her husband finds it hard to reach or to lift her out of. So in verse 8 he tries to reason with her, am I not better than ten sons? But to no avail. And you can imagine Elkanah just wishing that he was able to find the right words or provide some comfort to his wife to help her out of this situation. Saddened, perhaps even frustrated by the fact that he's unable to help her and alleviate her all-consuming tears and sorrow. Hannah, she receives his words, but they don't remove her problem. Now these are wonderfully faithful people, and yet they're both afflicted by this burden in very different ways. So Hannah does the only thing open to her. She comes to the meeting, and she participates in the offerings and in the fellowship meal. And she pours out her trouble to God in prayer. Deep, anguished pleading. In verse 10 we read that she was weeping sore. Again we read in verse 10 that she was praying in bitterness of soul. In verse 13 she was speaking in her heart. And at that very point, at that crisis of emotion, as she pours out her heart to God, There, in that place of all places, the head of their religious community observes her conduct and completely and totally misjudges her. He observes certain facts about her behaviour and he jumps to a conclusion. 
And upon that poor woman who has come along to this place of all places for respite, he heaps the opprobrium that she is a drunken sot, that she's an unclean woman who needs to clean up her act. Let's read through verse 12 and 13. It came to pass as she continued praying before Yahweh that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she'd been drunk. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. Can you imagine how those words would have cut? Like a slap across a raw open wound. The high priest, the very man that you would look to for insight, for guidance, and for compassion in Israel. I can imagine shock, disbelief, horror clutching at her heart. Surely, surely he can't have said that. Surely he can't have thought that about me. This, this is ghastly. Now this man, Eli, carried responsibility. His responsibility was to uphold the things of God, the sanctity of temple worship. It was his job to provide guidance to Israel. He's appalled at her behaviour. He's moved with indignation. And he rebukes her openly. It's just that he got it horribly, tragically wrong. You see, men make mistakes. Even spiritual leaders make mistakes. The record tells us he marked her mouth. And he thought. And he said, but he was wrong. And greatly exacerbating all of her other troubles and sorrows, he bestows the final indignity. He publicly rebukes this poor woman for drunkenness. God's high priest. Brothers and sisters, have you ever felt in ecclesial life that you or others close to you have been misjudged or that people have been unfair to us or accused us of things that we haven't done? or not reached a helping hand when we were down, but rather replaced it with a kick in the teeth? Have we ever felt that our community's leaders have got it terribly wrong in their judgment of us, our family, or of those close to us? But of course our objective today is not to determine whether they did or not, but simply to note that people make mistakes. And here's a sister at a time of personal vulnerability, misjudged terribly by the high priest, who added grief and humiliation to her bitterness of spirit. And it happens. Now is the moment of truth. How is Hannah going to respond? How would we respond if we were treated like that, if we were in her shoes? Does she rail on him, tell him perhaps his pedigree? Does she accuse him with histrionics and tears and shrieking of being a terrible monster? Does she storm out of the temple vowing and declaring she'll never go back to that place as long as that man's there? Does she travel around Israel roundly criticising the high priest, fully justified in her own mind in so doing because he was manifestly wrong and unjust to her? She's in the right. He's wrong. He's misjudged her. And he's supposed to be the spiritual leader of our community. Well, just look at her reaction. And notice her conduct towards the man who has misjudged her so cruelly. And just notice her respect. Her very first words, verse 15. No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. My Lord. She calls him my Lord. I imagine that if we were in that situation, brothers and sisters, there are many things that we would like to have called the high priest. And I suspect that my Lord may not have been the top of the list. Now, okay, in this situation, he is the divinely ordained high priest, unlike appointed ecclesial leaders in ecclesial life today. But nevertheless, notice this woman's remarkable spirit towards a man in a leadership position who got it woefully wrong. And frankly, brothers, what we see here is a generous spirit that's being displayed to a man who, by his actions, really didn't deserve it. Then what Hannah does is go through and simply explain the facts. 
which this man was unaware of. The things that he hadn't perceived. The missing information, which compels a very different conclusion. And notice her openness of heart. I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before Yahweh. So there's honesty here in explaining that there's something happening here inside her heart. She doesn't resentfully withdraw here, but there's an open, educa- open communication which educates the man who hadn't perceived the situation accurately. You know, it, this is very insightful, brothers and sisters, on how to handle a situation when someone misjudges us. There's a spirit here of meekness, but also of open honesty. And then, and can't you... Can't your heart feel the pleading in her words in verse 16? Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial. For out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken hitherto. And it's the pathetic entreaty of the vulnerable woman who's pleading for understanding and not blame. Now there's many lessons, brothers and sisters, for us all in this little incident. Many lessons actually for ecclesial life. Lessons for our brothers to be very careful and discerning in our decisions in ecclesial life and particularly in relation to other people. And for our sisters, just look at how this woman respected the distinctive roles, hers and the high priest's, and she was able to turn a terrible situation around through demonstrating a Christ-like spirit. Honesty, meekness, openness and an explanation. It's interesting, isn't it? In ecclesial life, if we respond in that way, then nine times out of ten, we find that our brothers and sisters are genuine as well, and they respond in love. They might convert in their position. They then turn around and rally around, and they provide support and compassion. People are very forgiving, particularly when they find that the facts are a little different from what they understood they may have been in the first place, when they learn a little bit more about you and why. And just look at how this now changes Eli's position. Look at Eli's response now. Because this woman has actually enlightened him. Now he understands. Now he's sympathetic. Now he's helping. Now he's reached a very different conclusion. So he says, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant thee thy petition which thou hast asked of him. And the record says, she said, let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. And she went away and did eat. And her countenance was no more sad. Now, isn't that an extraordinary, a phenomenal outcome in a very volatile situation which could have gone so terribly wrong? And sisters, this is a wonderful example of how to turn submission into triumph, even when male spiritual leaders get it wrong. The record tells us, verse 19, that Yahweh remembered her and she bare a son. And she called him, asked of God. Now note those little words, Yahweh remembered. What it tells us, brothers and sisters, is that all the interaction, all the dynamics of ecclesial and home life, they all happen in a context. And that context is that Yahweh sees. He hears. He understands. And he's able to bless those who serve him with the spirit of truth. So sisters, what happens if the men around you do not fulfill the role of spiritual leadership in the way that you would like? Well, if you take these principles and apply them well in life, a remarkable thing can happen. Your support can greatly increase what the men around you are actually capable of. And in the process, they can grow and learn. And in the end, the very thing which you may be bemoaning the lack of may grow and develop with your encouragement. There are many examples in Scripture. Actually, one of the greatest examples, and we haven't got time to look at it this morning, is the example of Deborah and Barak. But in a marriage, sisters, if you support, if you maintain that spirit of support and respect, over time, you may well help your husband to grow into his role. It's interesting how a supportive wife can make a weak man strong. But a bitter or ungenerous wife can make a strong man wither. But sadly, in Scripture, we also find that there is a different scenario altogether. And as we've said before during our studies, no two situations are ever the same. Not every situation is capable of being redeemed. 
So what happens if the man is really bad? Not just a situation here of some mistakes or some incompetence. What about a situation where sisters can see that the overall direction of men that they depend on is not right with God? Where their husbands or the male leaders of their ecclesia set out to defy God's principles and the principles of truth. And they do despite to God's holy ways. Husbands who hate the truth or who behave in a terrible way whilst ostensibly within the confines of the truth. What happens when the leader of your household is taking your household in the wrong direction, away from the truth? And at this point, that becomes a topic of much soul-searching and anguish. Now, why is that? Well, because this enormous, huge question hangs out there. What impact is that going to have on my salvation and on the salvation of our children? What should I do? Of course, every situation is different. There is no one-size-fits-all answer. And we do have sisters who face very complex situations. And that's when they really need our support as their ecclesial family around them. And then it's a matter of us trying to identify divine principles and then prayerfully trying to apply them as best we can in a very tough situation. But what we find is that the guidance in Scripture covers a It covers a very vast range of circumstances. On one end, we have Peter's instruction that we've already looked at in 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if they're disobedient to the word, without a word, you can win them over by your way of life or conversation. In other words, in that scenario, stay with them. And your submissive example may be the means of bringing back a disobedient husband who's disobedient to the word. But at the other end of the spectrum, we also have in Scripture a remarkably wise woman who publicly disowns her husband. And we're going to look at that example shortly as we go through. And therefore, there's a whole lot of different factors which need to be weighed up. Now, on one hand, we have to acknowledge that the behaviour of the head of the house often has a marked impact on the ultimate destiny of those inside his house, both his wife and his children for good or for evil. If you want a positive example, look at the example of Noah. Noah's family was saved because of his righteousness. The record says, Yahweh said to Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. The example of Dathan and Abiram makes the same point, but in the negative. Number 16, verse 31 came to pass as he made an end of speaking all these words, the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their houses. And the record says that that included their wives, their sons, and their little children. Or take the example of Lot. He's described as a righteous man. He moved his family to Sodom and he lost them all. So we have to accept that to some degree the behaviour of the husband does have an impact on the life and fate of his family, including his wife. It is so much harder if the husband is pulling in the wrong direction. But on the other hand, brothers and sisters, what about all those scriptural principles of of personal accountability, of personal responsibility? Look at these passages. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Or Ezekiel 18, verse 20, The soul that sinneth it shall die, the son will not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Or Isaiah 3, verses 10 and 11, Say ye to the righteous, it shall be well with him, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. So these two principles seem to conflict. How do we reconcile this concept of of individual accountability and responsibility with examples in Scripture which seem to indicate that the outcome for a wife and her children is very much dictated by what happens to the fate of their husbands? Does the very act of fulfilling a support role of submission, does that remove the element of free will and personal accountability? Does, what does this mean for, for our wives and 
their own personal responsibility towards God and, and their own relationship with the Father. Well, let's have a look now at scriptural teaching and some very gripping illustrations of this at work. And we're going to consider three examples. Three women. Every one of these women is married to a man who is absolutely abhorred by God. Now, in one case, his wife threw in her lot with him and she suffered his fate. And in the other two cases, the wives deliberately took action which were, was exactly the opposite of what their husbands had been doing. I'd like you to come with me to the first one. It's well known. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts and chapter 5. Now, we know the record, the story of Ananias and Sapphira well. How Ananias told a lie. They exaggerated the generosity of spirit that they were showing uh, when they made a donation to the ecclesial fund. And as a result of that, Ananias was struck dead. Now, I want us to put ourselves into that scene there in Acts chapter 5. You've just seen Ananias struck dead on the spot. Three hours pass by. You're still rather shaken by what you've seen. And you're sitting there in the room with the others when Sister Sapphira walks in through the door. And now there's a collective holding of breath. What's going to happen to her? Is she compromised by her husband? How, how's Sister Sapphira going to react when she finds out that her husband is dead? Now this is scary stuff. How's the relationship between husband and wife going to, to play itself out now here under the spotlight of divine evaluation? Everybody's sitting there in this room on absolute tenterhooks as they see her walk in. There's hushed silence. Peter speaks up. Ah, Sister Sapphira. Did you sell the land for so much? There's a moment's silence. Extraordinary suspense. And she answers, yes, that's right, for so much. And there's an inward groan in all listening hearts. So now what? What's her accountability? Is she to blame for a nefarious scheme which has been perpetrated by a husband? You know, it says in verse 4 that it was him who conceived it in his heart. It's quite pointed. So will she share his fate? And Peter says, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and will carry thee out. And she falls down dead, struck dead instantly, sharing the same fate as her husband. But I want us to note particularly a little statement made by Peter, which is tucked away there in verse 9. Peter said unto her, how is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord. And brothers and sisters, that says it all. There is the key. Here is a wife who certainly participated in the terrible fate which was suffered by her husband, but notice her personal participation in the sin as well. You have agreed together. You see, when a husband is unfaithful or wicked, enormous pressure can come on his wife to conform. His influence can work very strongly to pull her away from the things that are right in the truth. Actually, the same principles do outwork themselves in ecclesial life as well, if ecclesial elders pull the ecclesia in the wrong direction. So here is a situation where this woman is very vulnerable. She's at a disadvantage. She has a very strong influence being pulled and pulling on her in her family when the pressure comes on from her husband. But the divine summation nevertheless is, you have agreed together and therefore they share the same fate. And sisters, the lesson that comes from this little record for us is this. If the leadership of the male is bad, don't change your values. Don't conform to it. It's a bit like the principle that's taught in the scripture of our behaviour towards those in authority. We're told in a number of places in the New Testament record to obey those who are in authority, those who have been set up in governance by God. And yet, that is also balanced by the principle that we need to obey God rather than man. So our responsibility to submit to those in authority over us in this world is qualified by the prerequisite that our first responsibility is towards God. And so we submit to the laws of the land. We submit to all the ordinances of man. We submit up until the point where it directly contravenes the teaching 
and instructions of God. And at that point, we have to very prayerfully consider our options. Now, there are some inspirational examples in Scripture of women who, despite the downright wickedness of their husbands, stood aside as best they could from the folly of their worst half. And we find that it's always a matter of personal choice. And these are women who found themselves in a terrible situation, faced with all sorts of challenges in life, but we find that our behaviour is still, nevertheless, the result of our own personal choice and decisions. And we're now going to look at two remarkable examples. Now, both of these women were married to very wicked men, men who behaved in abhorrent ways. Interestingly, in both of these cases, these women were still living with their husbands, but they didn't support or conform to what their husbands were doing. And when the crunch point came, when the crisis arrived in their household, both of them stood aside from what their husbands were doing, and they were not swallowed up by their husbands' behaviour. Now, our first example is a woman of remarkable faith and courage, and it's found in the book of Judges. I'd like you to come back with me to Judges chapter 4 and 5, where this dramatic story is described. Now, the woman we meet here, back in in Judges chapter 4 and 5, was a member of a truly remarkable family. It's a family, actually, that was renowned in the history of Israel for their steadfastness, and to their resolute commitment in standing for the things that are right, the principles of the truth. It's the family of the Rechabites or the Kenites. And we find that for generation after generation, from Jethro through Hobab and on down through time, that tribe threw in their lot with the people of Israel. They were Gentiles who joined themselves to Israel, and they supported Israel every step along the way. But there were exceptions. And even in a faithful family, there can be exceptions. Because, of course, brothers and sisters, the truth is a matter of personal choice, personal decision, personal commitment. And even in an exemplary family, which is held up in Scripture for us, there was nevertheless a bad egg. And here's a faithful woman who's married a member of that great family, but he turns out to be. A bad egg. Now this is the story of Jael and Sisera, who was the captain of the the hosts of Canaan. Sisera was the head of the army of Jabin. So that's the mighty foe that was responsible for the degradation and the oppression of God's people. And as this story unfolds, we know how this mighty warrior met an untimely end, with his head crushed like the serpent he was at the hand of a woman. So who's this woman? She's described as Jael, the wife of Heba, the Kenite. But for us to really appreciate the, the, the extreme magnitude of what this woman did, we need to examine the family circumstances in which she found herself in first and gather a few extra details from the narrative to, just to appreciate the enormity of what she achieved. Because we find that Jael, who was a very faithful Uh, member of this remarkable household, upheld the truth whilst labouring under very difficult personal circumstances. We're going to pick up the record in Judges chapter 4 and verse 17. We're told that Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heba the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hatzor, and the house of Heba the Kenite. There was peace between them. They're friends. Now, how can this be? The Rechabite family was one that had joined themselves to Israel and had supported Israel to the hill right through their history. Not only that, this was a family whose faithful adherence to Israel's hope was renowned. So how could Heber, a member of that family, be friends with the very man who was oppressing the people of God in Israel in those days. This is a Kenite, a Kenite of all people, to be a traitor to Israel. How did it come to this? Well, we know how it came to this, because in verse 11 we read that Heber the Kenite, which was of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had severed himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent unto the plain of Zarnaim, which is by Kedesh. 
Here was a man, a member of this faithful family, a family that rejoiced, we're told, in the goodness of God towards Israel, and he severed himself from his people. Aren't those terrible words? He separated himself from the people of God. Now, as if this terrible situation was not bad enough, things got much worse. Such was this man's animosity towards his own people that when he heard that Barak had gathered with a band of faithful men to try and deliver Israel, Heba then did the unthinkable. He perpetrated the unthinkable crime. He betrayed them to Sisera. So we read that Heba had separated himself in verse 11, verse 12, and they showed Sisera that Barak the son of Abinoam was gone up to Mount Tabor. Now what motivates a man to turn his back on what is right, to sever himself from the people of God, to undermine what his family stands for, and then betray his brethren into the hands of the world? Now, tragically, as this man severed himself or separated himself from the people of God, he took his wife with him. He took his wife away from her friends, away from the family, away from her support network, into isolation, allied to Jabin. And so often when a husband or a father makes the wrong choices, there are innocent victims who pay the price. So here is a sister who lives in isolation. She's away from her support network and she's living with this faithless man. Now at this point she doesn't leave her husband. She's trapped in a really difficult situation but there she stays, seemingly helpless. Now you just imagine this woman having to play host to visitors like Jabin and Sisera. I'm certain that if we were looking from outside at that scene and had seen Heber and Jael playing host to Jabin and to Sisera in their tent, we would have lumped her in together with her husband. Bunch of traitors, the whole household. And there she was trapped. She was unable to move. But you know, when the opportunity came, this woman moved with a decisiveness that left all of Israel gasping in amazement and it has given her worldwide fame for eternity. And what we have in this record is two people who stand in enormous contrast to each other. They're both of the household of the Kenites. We have a man and a woman. They are husband and wife. And we have a man who was brought up in an environment of family faithfulness. And he chose a path of perfidy and shame. And here's a woman who's trapped in an environment of perfidy and shame. And she chooses a personal life of faithfulness. And they stand in the record before us as a testimony to the veracity of personal choice and responsibility. So sisters, now put yourself into the position of this woman. When the mighty Sisera comes to the door, everything in this woman cried out against this man. Everything about this man distressed her. He was the foe responsible for persecuting her people. He was the antithesis of everything that she believed in. And she's forced by reason of her, of her husband's faithlessness, to tolerate, nay, even to welcome and provide support to this man in her own home. She's expected to succour him in his time of need. But she saw the opportunity and she had the faith to act. And what courage would it have taken, sisters, for a woman to reach that conclusion and then follow it out? What understanding of the issues involved was required to strengthen her resolve and to nerve her arm, to give effect to the dreadful plan which circumstances had placed in front of her? Now, Jael didn't have power over where her husband was going to move the household or who he chose as his own friends. She couldn't stop her husband's betrayal of everything that she held dear but she could still maintain her own personal integrity, and she did. And when the opportunity arose, when suddenly, unexpectedly, the opportunity to do something about it was placed in front of her, she acted swiftly and resolutely, with some of the most remarkable faith and courage ever seen in the history of the world. And in the process, she also delivered her own people. So, sisters, if you find yourself 
inadvertently shackled to a man who does not uphold the principles of the truth, your journey can become extremely lonely, very hard. And where we can, as a community, we can try and support you. But often your journey is exceedingly lonely. It's a very lonely pilgrimage as you grapple with circumstances that you never expected to have to confront in life. Straining to, to maintain integrity in an environment which lacks it. And sometimes the loneliness of jail in this little situation here has a very sad reflection in the situation in which some of our sisters find themselves in, in life in these days. But sisters, if you do find yourself in that situation, the story of jail is inspirational. It says to us, never give up. Never lose sight of what is right. And when the opportunity arrives, faithfully do what you can when you have the ability to do something about it. And we find that the deliverance that God can accomplish, the strength and the courage that he can give to your hand in times of need can be beyond human comprehension and expectation. All right, what we want to do now is consider another situation altogether. What happens if the sister finds herself enmeshed in a situation which is so dire that imminent danger is about to fall upon unsuspecting heads, where lots of others, innocent bystanders, are about to get caught up in the terrible consequences of folly and sin? So, so sisters, what do you do when you get trapped in that sort of situation? How do you know when to speak up? How do you know when to stand out and make a difference? Because there are sometimes situations where a sister has no, no option but to speak up, to distance herself from what is egregious folly. It's when the consequences of sin would be catastrophic if she remained silent. I'd like you to come with me to 1 Samuel and chapter 25, because this is the dilemma that was faced by Abigail. Now, whereas Jael's husband had clearly left the truth, he had severed himself from being amongst his people... In Abigail's case, her husband was still in the truth. He's still part of Israel. In fact, he's a larger-than-life part of the local scene. He's wealthy and he's well-known. The problem is the record tells us basically he was a moron. He was boorish, he was self-indulgent, he was small-minded and stupid. He's known as Nabal the Fool. And this poor sister was married to him. Now, for years, she suffered the, the ignominy the shame and embarrassment of being married to this drunken sot. He is self-important. He's rude and he's mean-minded. Scripture describes him very graphically. He was churlish and evil. His wife Abigail is described as being beautiful and wise. But nevertheless, this poor woman was married to him. You imagine that, sisters. Being imagine, can you imagine being married to a man like that? It would be a bit like being married to Toad in Wind of the Willows. And you wonder how long it took her to realise the sort of man that she found herself married to. But nevertheless, she continues to faithfully fulfil the role of a wife in that household. Now things must have been pretty bad. The appalling behaviour of the master was so well known that the servants openly acknowledged it. In fact, even openly to their mistress, to, to his wife. And that's quite something. When all of them know what they're dealing with, and the servants know her honesty and feelings well enough that they can speak frankly to her about her husband as being a man of Belial. They say in verse 17, he's such a son of Belial that a man cannot speak to him. So now we've got a situation where mistress and servants have to work together to mitigate the worst consequences of this man's folly. Now scripture describes her as being a woman of good understanding. No doubt the views of her community towards her husband would have been a grief of mind to a woman who was sensitive and understanding. And for years, she had to put up with this in silence, with galling behaviour which was well known and spoken of by others. I can imagine her goaded almost beyond endurance, feeling compromised by the relationship she's shackled to, and she's tainted with association by his behaviour. And again, sisters, what a lonely existence. Here's a woman who could have no confidence in the one that she was appointed to be a helpmeet for. There was certainly no close bond of trust between them. Certainly we don't have an example here of minds united together on the principles of the truth. 
She just has a fabulous marriage. She's a woman of understanding, and he is a manifest fool. So when we meet her, in the record, that was her lot. She was suffering in silence. But finally the point came where she had no choice, and she's forced to act. Now we know the story well. David in verse 13 is insulted. He's incensed by what's been said to him. And he's coming with 400 men with drawn swords to execute vengeance. Now at this point she can no longer hold back out of a sense of duty to her husband. Or loyalty. Or cover for her husband to keep up the pretense. She's now faced with a situation where she has no choice but to act. For two reasons by the way. One is to preserve her own integrity, and secondly, the lives of many people around her depended on this. So her servants come to her, and they warn her to consider the evil consequences which are determined upon all the household, they say, because of the totally unacceptable and unjust way that Nabal had spoken to David's men. They say, evil is determined against our master and against all his household. That was their sober warning. So the implications, the obvious consequences of remaining silent were very obvious to them and also to her. So sisters, imagine the the moral dilemma that she's facing now. How does she weigh these things up? What are her responsibilities to her husband? Should she cover for him? Should she support him? Should she back him up? Or does she need to take some action which shows clearly that she's not in support of what this man has done? And in fact, what she does here is she takes very deliberate and practical, tangible steps to do the exact opposite of what her husband had chosen to do. He denied those men food. So she takes what an effect were Nabal's resources to provide food to David and his men. So she's now heading on a path which is diametrically opposed to that of her husband. So now she's been left with no choice but to go directly and explicitly against her husband's wishes. She's gone against his lead and his precedent, and she's now personally doing the very thing which he refused to do, and she's actually using his resources to do it. But we know from the record that the issues involved are actually even more profound than just that. Because she also knew and referred to the promises that had been made about David and about his destiny. So Abigail understood God's purpose for David. And she knew that David was about to do something very wrong. And she knew that if he was allowed to continue, he would live to bitterly regret it later. And so she also stopped David for his own sake from shedding blood and taking vengeance. This is the powerful effect of a wise woman's actions in terrible circumstances. What this record tells us, brothers and sisters, is that there is a point where we have to say the divine principles here are too precious to allow them to be compromised. And at that point, a submissive wife has to strike out alone. And in the process, this poor woman has to openly acknowledge to another man the appalling nature and behaviour of her husband his character, and his folly. And wouldn't that be a very painful position for a wife to be in? What pain it must have given her to be forced to make those comments to another person about her husband. How humiliating that must have been for this woman. And it was a desperate and sad woman who knelt before David in 1 Samuel 25 and acknowledged, as his name is, so is he. Folly is in him. And you have to feel very sad for that woman in the choices that she faced, the dilemma which was presented to her at that point in time. It was a very invidious and lonely position that cut across so many things that she would much rather have been able to do. So the dilemma which is faced by sisters at this point, in this sort of a crisis is, at what point do I stand aside from what he's doing, from what he is? Now, of course, that's a really hard question to answer. Every situation is different. No two circumstances are alike. The circumstances and the people are different in every case. And sometimes a sister is faced with that question. At what point do I have no choice but to chart a different course? 
Now, in this story, we have, we have some principles which are given expression to, which are illustrated well in the record. And it's useful to just go through and look at the situation and objectively analyse why it was she made that choice in the circumstance. Her husband's folly was about to cause other people, David, to sin, which would have compromised God's plan and purpose and led David to later lasting regret. Her husband's folly meant that her whole household was at risk. Many innocent people's lives were at risk. Her husband's folly was publicly known anyway, and it was commented on. Divine principles had been breached, and sins needed to be acknowledged. She, by the way, actually felt morally compromised. Let this sin be on me. And she actually personally took food because she felt a responsibility because of the error of what her household had done. And in her view, the wrongs that had been done to other people in this situation needed to be put right when she provided them with food. When you look at the gravity of that situation, brothers and sisters, what that tells us is this. This is not an easy excuse to be used for abandoning the principles of submission. This was no minor disagreement on insignificant matters. There were 400 armed men about to slaughter the household. That's a crisis in anybody's language. And the challenge is for all of us is to know when that point has been reached. And that has to become a matter of very careful prayer and agonising. And sisters, if you are ever faced with that same dilemma, then it's helpful to consider the, the extent of the circumstances that Abigail found herself in and the principles that are involved when we have to make those personal choices in life. What we actually find is that these two women, Jael and Abigail, both of them stand as a beacon, as a witness or a testimony to us of the fact that our course in life is always a personal choice. And so, sisters, your role of submission, your role of being called to be a helpmeet for your husband, does not take away from the fact that you still have a personal responsibility to do what's right. Personal choice in terms of your own integrity and making your own personal decisions on your commitment to the principles of the truth. Now, before we conclude this morning, I want to just touch briefly on one other little example in Scripture. As we've noted this morning we find that there are situations where sisters who face these challenges can find themselves in extremely lonely territory. They're alone, having to grapple with extremely difficult situations. They've been bereft of the loving care of an appropriate provider right at the time of their greatest need. Now, brothers and sisters, in that context, it's interesting to see how in Scripture, faithful widows are often held up by God as being the epitome of faithfulness for Israel to look to and learn lessons from. Time and time again, widows are used to teach lessons in Scripture. And the reason for that is highlighted in 1 Timothy 5, verse 5, when the Apostle writes, A widow indeed and desolate trusts in God and continues in supplication day and night. And they become a beacon, a light for us, an example of what faithful commitment to God actually involves. And our topic this morning was vulnerability. And isn't it an enigma that those in our community who are in the greatest need of love and support can, in their hour of need, be the greatest example to us of faithfulness and steadfastness for us to follow? So may it be, brothers and sisters, that we continue to work together prayerfully and humbly in ecclesial life, understanding, supporting each other in the work of the truth, always knowing that the angel of Yahweh encamps round about those that fear him and delivereth them.